It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Just two years ago, it was the only regular fixture in all of our diaries. Every Thursday evening, without fail, the country poured out onto the streets to applaud the doctors and nurses who were on the front line fighting the pandemic. It's time to make some noise for our carers. It is thanks to that courage, that devotion, that duty and that love that our NHS has been unbeatable. But as the pandemic receded, people stopped looking. We didn't notice the extraordinary pressure the NHS is still under. And now, the cracks are starting to show. England's National Health Service is facing the worst workforce crisis in history. They're overworked, they're exhausted, they're burnt out, and they could no longer stay in their jobs. The pressure has continued to build, so much so that nurses across the UK have voted to strike for the first time in more than a hundred years. Hundreds of thousands of nurses have spoken up loud and clear today. What they've said to governments right across the UK, enough is enough. It's unprecedented, but nurses voting to strike isn't the only crisis facing the NHS right now. This will be the worst winter the NHS has ever experienced. COVID backlogs, staff shortages, the winter crisis and the impending nursing strike. How did we get here? And will Jeremy Hunt's promise of extra funding make any difference at all? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today the perfect storm facing the NHS. I can't tell you specifically what made me want to go into nursing. I wanted to do it because my nature was caring for other people and being there for other people. And I absolutely loved it. My name is Amira. I'm a senior nurse working in an NHS hospital in London. And Amira, 
I know that you've had quite a tough week already. You've just done a series of 12 and a half hour shifts. How has it been? It's been a very tough week. It's so demanding at the moment working in hospitals. There's just so many people that need your attention. You're trying to manage so many other people that you're often not able to deliver the care that you're trained to do. And on top of that, trying to get through your day and not being able to have a moment to have a glass of water, to take your lunch break, and then to not sometimes go to the toilet after working eight hours on your feet. It it gets quite difficult. It makes you almost think, what is the point of this? Why do I always come in and I see the same thing happening again and again? It's just staff shortages every day. Sometimes you even think that you can't handle the responsibility anymore. You're wondering whether you can still continue. A 12 and a half hour shift is incredibly stressful. How do you feel by the end of it? I can't wait to leave. I try and run out of those doors as fast as I can and hope that no one can catch me along the way to just stop me and ask me a question. And even then, when your time is up, the number of hours we're paid to work, the number of hours that we should be there for, uh, you still end up leaving later. You count the hours, count the minutes, count the seconds before your time is up. I know that sounds bad, but you know when you're just so desperate to get home, to just relax, to just take a shower because you've been sweating the entire day. You know, even making your dinner is really hard. Whether that's putting it in the microwave or in the oven, making a cup of tea, you actually just want to come home and just lie in bed and just sleep. Presumably, when you went into nursing, you didn't think you'd be watching the clock or desperate to leave at the end of the day. What did you think it would be like? I remember when I was 17, when I first started working as a healthcare assistant, I used to work on a stroke ward and I used to play the piano that was there in the, it was like a common room for staff, but also for patients who are going through rehab to be there. So I used to play the piano there for about an hour, sometimes at lunchtime. I could sit down, talk to the patients because there were enough staff back then. But now... Sometimes you can have a conversation for a couple minutes, but even a couple minutes can sometimes be too much to have because you're trying to balance your time and giving the treatment to your patients. So we're more focused on providing the treatment to make them better, but we're not able to really care for them properly. Do you feel like the pressure on nurses has increased in your time in the profession? Yeah, the pressure has increased because we're responsible for more patients than we should be. So as the years have gone on, uh, the pay for nurses hasn't really changed. In fact, we've lost a third of our pay since 2010 in real terms. And with the cost of living increasing, with inflation going much higher, our pay is therefore really staying the same. We're not able to afford rent, not able to afford our mortgages, bills, food, to look after our children. Nurses are leaving the profession to work in other countries where they have better benefits. So because of staff shortages, it's then impacting on the other nurses' responsibilities. And Amira, I know recently you actually took a break from nursing. You stepped back for a bit. What prompted that? Was there a particular day where you just remember thinking, I I can't do this 
I can't do this right now. Uh, last year, at the beginning of the year, I worked three months of night shifts in the hospital. I can't begin to tell you what kind of state of mind I was in. I was living on my own and I never saw daylight. I somehow managed to get through those, but then there was a day where suddenly my shift had changed and I couldn't do it anymore and I called in sick. Um, I wasn't ready to go back mentally. I was finding it very hard to comprehend the trauma that I had been through. I needed help. I think my friends actually saw that I was really withdrawing and, you know, I just wasn't communicating and they got very worried about me. And they were the ones who actually set up therapy for me. It was only really then when I actually started talking is when I started feeling a bit better. And then eventually I went back to work. But then nurses were leaving every single day, handing in resignation after resignation. And it made things more tight on the wards, on the ICUs, in the emergency department. And it became very difficult to work where, I mean, in general, since I was 17, I had missed out on a lot of social gatherings anyway. But it got to a point where I was every year, I'm missing my mum's birthday. I'm missing, you know, a dinner here, a family gathering there. But I think it had started getting into my head a bit more. And you've gone back to it now. But do you, I mean, are there moments where you wonder whether this is the profession for you? If you were to go back and speak to, you know, 17-year-old you and you were deciding what to do, is this what you'd recommend? I can't imagine doing anything else. I love that I can help people who are in the most difficult time of their lives. Whilst it's very difficult to do now, and sometimes I have regrets every day by feeling like I've not done my very best, I still don't think there's anything else that I could do. Amira's story is not unique. Nurses across the NHS are facing extraordinary pressures on a daily basis. One of my colleagues, who sees the problems across the entire institution, is Sean Linton, health editor at the Sunday Times. I'm spending a lot of my time at the moment writing about the pressures on the NHS as we approach winter and we're dealing with some of the crises that are forever plaguing the system. Sean, this is a remarkable moment in the world of health. This is the first time that the Royal College of Nursing has voted to strike in its 106-year history. How did we get to this point? This hasn't just come overnight. In fact, I've been sort of watching myself the deterioration in relationships between nurses and firstly their employers, the NHS trusts, but then NHS England and lastly, of course, the government and Downing Street. We haven't really valued nurses as the safety-critical role that they are in hospitals. And so now we're at a stage where nurses feel 
undervalued, not listened to. They're seeing their wards hugely understaffed. The patients are sicker and they need more complex care. And yet, although we are seeing increasing numbers of nurses, we're not seeing that meet the levels of demand. It's not matching that demand. So where we are now is it's manifested into a pay dispute. Clearly, pay is a huge factor in retaining nurses and making them feel valued. But I think there's also a much deeper unease and and unhappiness amongst the nursing profession at the moment. And pay, and this particular row at the moment with the cost of living crisis, is really just the distillation of a decade-long problem, I think. And clearly, you know, the environment in which they work has been getting tougher. The demands on them are becoming much, much harder. But what are their specific demands to government in order to stop these strikes from happening? Well, the Royal College of Nursing has said that what it wants is an inflation plus 5% pay increase. So that would be roughly 17% increase in pay. But it's made in the context of you know the last decade of what they see as uh, low pay and nurses taking the brunt of the, first the financial crisis and the austerity years and now the new cost of living crisis. They're not asking for golden handshakes out of this. They're not. They're asking for a decent living wage. There is also demands around terms and conditions of nurses, but principally this is a a pay dispute primarily. And at the moment, I think it's quite difficult to see how either side will be able to reach an agreement because they're very, very far apart. And you talked about the historic blows to their profession, you know, starting with austerity. If you were a nurse just before austerity, do we have a sense of how much their pay, for example, has suffered? Yeah, so the the RCN has made clear that they believe nurses have seen their real pay in terms of inflation decrease by, you know, anything like 15 to 20% over the last decade. Because we've held pay back as pay restraints in the public sector, they are earning in real terms less than they would have done if pay had increased in line with inflation. You can start as a nurse on a salary of £25,000 and thereabouts. Now, most will earn more than that because they do overnight shifts and weekend work and things like that. So the average earnings for a nurse is around £34,000 a year. That's not a terribly low salary in the context of other jobs in the country, but nurses do feel that they are worth a lot more. And by not paying them a salary that can attract nurses to the profession, we're losing lots of staff. Over 30,000 in the last year alone have voted with their feet and, and left the profession. So we're exacerbating workforce shortages by not necessarily increasing pay. So there is a danger that we'll end up losing a lot, lot of the workforce if they're not paid more. I mean, their, their demand, 17%, is historically high for any kind of pay dispute. And they have had some criticism for that. Let's be honest, the cost of living crisis means many of our listeners will be getting nothing like a 17% pay rise this year. The government say that will cost over £9 billion. I I can see why the government aren't willing to get out their checkbook at this. But, you know, this is a pay dispute and clearly there, there has to be Uh, negotiation on this. That's what they will be seeking. There has been a meeting between the health secretary and the unions, but there's no real sense of any pay negotiations being convened at the moment. That's alarming because it does seem we could be in for strikes for the first time 
starting in December. We've never seen this before. What exactly would a nursing strike look like? So there'll be lots of potentially cancelled operations, operations where patients aren't necessarily in in threat of life or anything like that. That's obviously bad news for those patients. It could leave them in pain for longer. You know, a lot of sort of non-urgent, non-emergency work will be postponed on that day. I think we'll start with one day's action. And all of this is to be confirmed, so it could change. But I think we'll begin on that basis. I think nurses will continue to work in places like A&E departments, intensive care units, those kinds of areas. But everything that can be stopped without risking patient harms, that will be stopped. And the interesting thing about that is it's it's what do you define as urgent and emergency care? So for example, will nurses still go out and give regular injections to patients in the community? Things like insulin and things like that. And I think before we get to a strike date, the RCN will need to describe to the NHS what exactly it will deem in the scope of its strike action. And I know that those talks are happening at the moment, but if you are one of those patients affected, it's going to be quite bad for you, I think. And of course, there'll be disruption running up to and post the day as well. And that's only the start of this. It could last for a long time yet. But the threat of looming strikes isn't the only urgent problem facing the NHS. Coming up, we'll look at why this winter the perfect storm is brewing and what that might mean for the NHS. That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm Jonathan Ames. I'm the legal editor of The Times. The amazing thing about the law is that there is no aspect of life that it doesn't touch. I get to look at politics, the arts, sport, almost everything. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sean, I mean, this all sounds really alarming and it has the prospect of making waiting lists even longer. As somebody who's worked as a health journalist for more than a decade now, just give us a sense of how bad a shape is the NHS in at the moment? It's hard to kind of underestimate the challenges facing the NHS at the moment. We've just come through a pandemic, which was really, you know, the worst that people have ever seen in some of their careers within the NHS. And I've spoken to lots of nurses and doctors who who thought that they'd really reached the nadir of their, of their time as professionals. But then we've emerged from the yeah. pandemic with all those problems that were there before. So the NHS wasn't meeting its waiting time targets before the pandemic. It wasn't meeting its cancer targets. There was huge pressure on the NHS before the pandemic. And that's just been made worse now. So we've got a situation where, in effect, the NHS is in the grip of a real capacity crisis. We don't have enough beds. We don't have enough doctors, nurses. We don't have enough equipment, machines, MRI scanners, CT scanners, things like that. And that's why you cannot be guaranteed that someone will answer your 999 call and that an ambulance will reach you in good time if you're taken suddenly critically ill. In terms of accident and emergency, over 29,000 of us had to wait more than 12 hours in England in July. That figure's up 33% on the month before. And the number of us You can't be sure that your cancer will be diagnosed quickly enough, and you can't be sure if you need an operation like a new hip or anything like that. You can't be sure that you won't have to wait a year or more in discomfort and pain, potentially, before you get that seen to. So that, that's where we are, really. You've been talking to people who have been directly affected by this, the patients who've seen what happens when the system goes wrong. Give us a sense of how it's already impacting people's lives. I've been struck the last, at least the last 18 months, I've been uh, reporting specifically about ambulance delays. And that's really an area where it's really come to a head in the last 12 months. And, you know, one particular story that I've covered recently is the sad case of baby... Uh, Willow Rain, who was born in September, perfectly healthy at 39 weeks at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. She was discharged home and her family unfortunately found her unresponsive very early in the morning at around 4.30am, just eight hours or so after she'd been discharged. And, you know, naturally her grandmother flew into a panic and dialed 999 and it actually took eight minutes for that call to be answered, first of all. Eight minutes for a 999 call to be answered? Yeah, eight minutes. And if you can imagine that is a, an eternity when you've got your newborn child not, not responding, not breathing. And unfortunately, that is not unique. Then what happened was that her grandmother, who was a mental health nurse, was uh, carrying out CPR and 
that although they were told help was coming, they weren't given any specific time and how long that would take for the paramedics to reach them. And if they had have been told it would take over half an hour, they probably could have driven themselves to hospital. But unfortunately, they weren't given that. The paramedics took over half an hour to get there. And sadly, they couldn't help Willow Rain. And an investigation is being carried out by the South Central Ambulance Service. We're still waiting the results of that investigation. But I think what's important for people to know is that's not a one-off. There are over 4,000 patients being severely harmed or dying every month at the moment due to delays in ambulances handing over patients at A&E departments. So if you work that out over a year, it's well in excess of 40,000 people being severely harmed. And what we're talking about there is losing a limb, becoming permanently disabled or dying. This is real severe harm being meted out to people because of the, the capacity crisis in the system at the moment. I mean, that's shocking, I think, because we all expect the NHS to be there as a safety net to save us. And with the case of the baby, presumably that is the case. You know, in any other environment, the baby would have survived if the NHS was functioning normally. Well, we can't. It would we, still be alive. We can't be certain of that actually, just at the moment. But what we what we can be certain of is, I think, that Willow Rain wasn't given the best chance. And I've spoken to dozens of patients in the last year who've had similar experiences. And even if they get to hospital, patients are spending huge amounts of time waiting in the back of ambulances to get into A and E departments, which are absolutely crammed at the moment. I think the longest wait was in the West Midlands, and that's been clocked at 29 hours and 51 minutes. We've got 13,000 patients who are stuck in hospitals at the moment who no longer need medical treatment but can't be discharged. And that's because we've got a crisis in social care and the number of care home beds have gone down and with the capacity to deliver home care has gone and the number of district nurses which deliver a lot of care out in the community very specialized nurses we've halved the number of district nurses since 2010 so you you can see how it all connects if there's capacity lost in one part of the system it backwashes through the whole nhs really right through to the 999 call at the very beginning and Sean, we're just approaching that moment in the year where, you know, we've all become almost accustomed to there being an NHS winter crisis. How bad do we think it's going to be this year? I think there's no doubt, Manvina, from my perspective, I've this will be my 11th winter, I think, as a health specialist. I'm uh, unfortunately very confident that this will be the worst winter the NHS has ever experienced. We'll see a lot more stories of people waiting for 999 ambulances to respond. We'll see A&E departments declaring critical incidents. We have already seen some A&E departments temporarily closing and diverting patients to other hospitals because they're just completely crammed. Unfortunately, I suspect we're going to see some pretty awful stories emerge from the health service in the next few months. I will increase the NHS budget in each of the next two years by £3.3 billion. Pounds. Yeah! £3.3 billion for the NHS. 
£4.7 billion for social care, a record £8 billion package for our health and care system. That is a Conservative government putting the NHS first. Jeremy Hunt has announced the big autumn statement. And of course, before he was Chancellor, he was Health Secretary for six years. He's the UK's longest serving Health Secretary. What does the autumn statement mean for the NHS? Well, on one hand, it's good news. And on the other hand, it's not so good news. And what we've seen from Jeremy Hunt is a recognition the NHS does, in fact, need more money. So he's announced that the NHS spending will grow by £3.3 billion this year and next year. So £3.3 billion each year, I should say. That's good news because the NHS was saying it faced a potential gap of seven billion. Clearly, that's a huge sum of money. And they had warned that NHS England may have to cut back on things like cancer care, mental health care, GPs, things like that. And so this money is designed to kind of fill that gap. And NHS England has said that given the forecasted decline in inflation and some spending cuts that it's already been able to kind of achieve, that 3.3 billion will be enough to cover that gap just about. The problem is, this autumn statement, it's not a check that allows the NHS to invest in loads of new nurses or to build new hospitals or anything like that. There's no new money for that kind of spending. And I think that's potentially going to be a problem in the years ahead because there are still huge questions over the NHS's long-term spending and investments when we've got huge workforce shortages, hospitals that are in some places, quite literally falling down. So I'm not sure this will be the last word from Jeremy Hunt. And Sean, experts for years now have often said that you can't begin to fix the NHS until you start to do more about social care. There was an announcement in the autumn statement there would be more money for social care. Just talk us through the scale of the problem and how one affects the other. It's something that people don't often talk about. We talk about problems in the NHS separate to problems in social care. But this year, I think we've started to see actually the real interconnectedness of both systems. And in social care particularly, what we've got there is a real confluence of pressures. Social care doesn't have the higher levels of pay that the NHS has. It doesn't have that centralised management and funding. So you've got care homes where quite frankly, carers can earn more going to work in the nearby Aldi or Lidl supermarkets at the moment. And we are seeing an exodus of care staff. You know, there's a huge numbers of vacancies in social care, well in excess of 150,000. And that means that care homes are having to limit what they can actually provide. So I do know that some care homes are running with actually with empty beds because they just don't have the staff to look after them. And unless we fix social care, this will just keep having a a kind of rebound effect on the NHS and we'll end up spending more dealing with all of the consequences of that. I think the autumn statement is good news for social care in one sense. It's 2.8 billion next year, followed by 4.7 billion. These are significant sums of money in investment, but 
this comes from council tax. A lot of this money will be based on councils raising council tax to the maximum 5% level. And, you know, that doesn't raise money in equal amounts. So an area down south raising council tax will raise lots more money than an area in the north with more deprived, less valuable housing. So, you know, it's an it's an unequal solution for the social care problem. I think longer term, you know, people are already talking about we, we've got to transition to some sort of national care service approach to social care. Sean, we've just seen the government trying to address the problem of of the NHS in the autumn statement. From what you've said, it sounds like it's more of a sticking plaster. This isn't going to offer any big solutions yet. What do you think needs to happen? What needs to happen to start to address the scale of the problem? I think we have to solve the social care capacity problem. We've got to find a way of providing more care in the community. And I don't just mean in care homes. I mean, we have to provide people more support in their own homes and keeping them out of hospital. So we need investment in district nurses and community care teams. That's where a lot of people don't focus on. It's a hidden problem, really. But a lot of those patients will end up being admitted to hospitals and, and we see the, the consequences of that. I also think we've got to get invested in workforce. We've got to fix these problems. I've been writing for over a decade about the shortages of nurses in hospitals and the effects that has on patient safety and mixed care and, and mistakes happening, etc. There is talk of a workforce plan. Jeremy Hunt did say that there would be a workforce plan with a 5, 10 and 15 year sort of scan to see what we would need. The question is though, whatever that comes up with, will it be fully funded? You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Sunday Times health editor, Sean Linton. You can find all of Sean's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Priyanka Delardia. The executive producers today were Kate Ford and James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.